We'll be looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And hear the word of God. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of Paul here, which are to us the very word of God, as indeed the Thessalonians received the words of the apostles, not merely as the word of men, but as the very word of God. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit, like the prophets, spoke from God. And so we receive his words as the church has always done, this book and all the other books which compose the canon as the word of God, as you speaking to us from heaven. And we look forward to that, uh, O oh Lord, uh, the, un- the unfolding and the expounding of that, I mean, uh, through the preaching. And we pray that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time I indicated that verses uh, 8 through 15 Uh, form their own unit, uh, and the way to describe what Paul is expressing there is his own heart, his own feeling towards the church uh, in Rome, but in general, we could say, his feeling towards Christians in general and churches in general. And so the way to look at these verses, uh, again, verses 8 through 15, this being the second now of three sermons that we will have on those verses is what Robert Haldane calls the character of Paul's ministry. And so this is the second uh, part uh, in those three sermons, part two of the character of Paul's ministry. And uh, along with that, we discover his ecclesiology or his doctrine of the church. In other words, as he is addressing the church, he's describing the church and he's telling us what the church consists of and what her life is meant to look like. And so we find here Paul the man, Paul the apostle, Paul the minister. And let me also emphasize, as we'll see toward the end of the sermon, Paul the Christian. I know that we are eager to get to verse 16 and beyond. I am myself. In fact, I confess to you, and in some ways I'm correcting that tendency in myself through these sermons. I've always rushed to verse 16 every time I've read Uh, The book of Romans, I've been in a hurry to get to everything that he has to say about justification, which begins in verse 16. And then, as as I've argued, goes to the end of the book. The whole of the book, beginning in verse 16, is an exposition and an unfolding of the doctrine of justification. And I realize that's our great interest. But we have to see that before he ever gets there, he has uh, he has much to tell us. Uh, And and I I am indebted, as I've indicated to Martin Lloyd-Jones in this. Uh, he is the one, I think, more than anyone else. I, I've read the commentaries as well, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, now I'm not seeking to follow him here. Let me be clear about that. But he preached 19 sermons just on verses 1 through 15. Uh, and I, I was really struck when you, when you start to read Lloyd-Jones on Romans, which I've read through all those sermons, and you notice he preaches all these sermons just on these first 15 verses. I was struck uh, by the value of all that he was saying. Uh, and and it, it made me reevaluate the value of these verses, 1 through 15 of the book of Romans. So what is the value of those verses? Well, Paul is indicating here, verses 1 through 15, which form more or less the introduction, 
verses 16 and 17, the thesis, and then verse 17 to the end, the arguments. Paul is indicating things here that provide the context for the later arguments. He doesn't begin with the arguments, but he begins with the people, which includes himself. And he is telling them why it is and how it is he, he hopes to accomplish some good among them by writing this letter. So full of the doctrine of justification. And this is something that stands out, especially in verse 11, when he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you might or so that you may be established. He, he speaks there of his desire to impart some spiritual gift so that they may be, he says, established. Uh, the meaning of that is something I hope to unfold later on in the sermon as my second point. But here, let me just notice uh, that this statement cannot be quickly passed over. Verse 11, we pass over to our peril in seeking to understand the book of Romans and what it was Paul was seeking to accomplish. We lose an important insight that gives greater meaning to the ensuing arguments in the letter. And tell us why it was the doctrine of justification was important and why these Christians needed it. And that insight is Paul's reason for writing the letter. He wrote to them for the same reason he wanted to visit them. His great desire was to strengthen and establish them in the faith so that they might stand firm, as we will see. And here is where the value of the doctrines come in. Doctrines like, once more, justification. Paul and the other apostles always wrote to the churches in a doctrinal manner. I wonder if you've ever noticed that in reading the New Testament. It is a highly doctrinal book. The apostles, in writing to the churches in this doctrinal way, were sharing the truths of the gospel. And then they were working it out. Or to put it uh, another way, they were, as we will see, preaching the gospel to them. As Paul will later say in verse 15, why did they do this? Why uh, did Paul have so much to say about justification here in the book of Romans and to the Romans? The answer is because he knew that's what they needed. He knew that is what would help them most. So last time, as we began to consider this again, the character of Paul's ministry, we noticed three things. We notice that what characterized Paul's ministry was, first, thanksgiving to God, second, gospel service, and third, prayer. And here I feel that I ought to stress something more about the last point. And so that becomes the first point of this new sermon. Not simply prayer, but that the, the apostles' prayer was intercessory. Intercessory prayer. You remember last time we looked at the fact that his ministry involved prayer. That he didn't labor for the well-being of the church apart from prayer. And that in doing so, he was seeking the will of God. Which was really the main point I was stressing about prayer at the end of that sermon. By prayer, he expressed his own desire. But in that, he was seeking to bring his will in line with God's. But what I want to notice here is the fact, the fact of intercession. He says in verse 9, That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, his prayer for himself is stated in verse 10, that by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. But in verse 9, which I just read, he states his prayers for others. I make mention of you always in my prayers. You notice he puts that first, what he prays for them first, then his prayer for himself second. 
If you were to look at the apostles' other epistles, especially in the beginning, you would find this is common. Uh, as for instance, we read in the scripture reading, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's prayer for the churches. That they would come to experience the power of God that was manifest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's one famous example. But if you were to go through his epistles, you would find that was his common practice. There's one glaring example or, or um, exception, which we considered last time. And that's the beginning of Galatians. He doesn't pray for them. He just rushes into his amazement, his bewilderment that they were straying from the gospel. But typically, Paul would express his prayers in his epistles. And by this, again, we find his heart and the character of his ministry. Here was a man who was accustomed to pray for others. This not only gives us an insight into his heart, but also why it was in particular that he wrote these letters, even to Christians he had never met, like the Roman Christians. What was he seeking to do by the letters? What was it he wanted for the churches? Well, look at his prayers at the beginning of his letters and you will find your answer. He wanted the Christians to experience certain things. The power of God and so forth. Power of God being what we read uh, in, in Ephesians. Or if we looked at his prayer in Philippians, that God would bring them uh, to completion, the work of salvation, so that, so that they might be able to stand at the last day before Jesus Christ. Paul wanted them to be equipped to face all kinds of hardships that they were bound to face as Christians. So he prays for them in this regard. And then he seeks to help them in the same way. Here, let me notice again the truth of Haldane's statement, which we considered last time. He says, both prayer and labor ought to go together. To pray without laboring is to mock God. To labor without prayer is to rob God. Until these things are conjoined, the gospel will not be extensively successful. And so the point is, Paul prayed, but he didn't only pray. The very things he sought from God, he offered to the people through his preaching and through his letters. He was seeking to give them the very things he sought from God. And so you see, not one without the other, but both together. Paul wasn't so spiritual that he just prayed and then left it all to God. He was so alive in the spirit and so animated with a holy zeal to prosper the churches that he did both constantly. I make mention of you always in my prayers, he says, but he also labors constantly for the church. And so this is what we mean when we speak of intercession. Intercession is a concern for others that we bring to God. And if you're not interceding for others in your prayers, then you are missing one of the central purposes of prayer. We must remember what prayer is and what it involves. Perhaps we would stop and think about that from time to time when we come to God in prayer, what it is we're actually doing and what it is we're hoping to accomplish. What is prayer? Well, this would be my definition, especially with uh, the book of Hebrews standing very strongly in the background of my thought. By prayer, we are granted access to the throne of grace. And there we meet with Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest. By prayer, we are granted access to the throne of grace. And there we meet with Jesus, our great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Now, that in itself tells us that prayer, by definition, must involve this aspect because it brings us to the place of intercession. 
The throne room of God is a place of intercession because Jesus is there interceding for us always. And so we're not surprised to find both aspects standing out together in Hebrews chapter 10. We know what he says in applying uh, the doctrine of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, having boldness to enter by the holiest, uh, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way by which he consecrated uh, for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a, a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us draw near into the throne room, he is saying, where Jesus is. And let us seek to enter through his priesthood and through his intercession. In other words, what enables us to pray is a grasp, our grasp of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and what it is he has done and is doing now. That is what gives us boldness to pray. But listen to what he says next. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see how easily and naturally these two thoughts go together. Boldly enter the throne of grace. Consider and remember your brother. And so having understood what it is to draw near into the place of intercession from the earlier arguments of the book of Hebrews... And seeing Jesus' concern for us as our great high priest and intercessor, we come to him in prayer with a similar concern for our brother. It all fits together. And if your prayers, do, if in your prayers, I mean, you do not remember your brother, that is, if you do not intercede for him, then you're missing out on what prayer is and what it's meant to be. Prayer is not me and God having a chat. God at my will asking me what would make me happy. The divine butler awaiting my next request. That isn't what prayer is. Let me say again. Prayer is the bold entry into the throne room of God. It is a place of intercession because Jesus is there. And so by definition, you see, it not only includes myself, because I am one for whom Jesus is interceding, but it includes my brother for whom Jesus is also an intercessor. He, like me, is included in Christ's intercession. And so to meet with Christ there in the throne room of God by prayer is to meet with him in his act of intercession. Again, it is to find him pleading for me, but also for my brother. And can I not find him there like this? And not join him in the same act. And it is in that sense that we find Paul again the intercessor in his prayers. And it is this point equally which I think we can all admit reveals a a strain, a, a crucial strain of weakness in our prayers. That our prayers are preoccupied with ourselves. Our theology of prayer beloved is defective and is revealed in our practice. If we were really so spiritual that we grasped and comprehended the gospel as Paul did. Our prayers would be taken up primarily with intercession. So that's the first point. But let me come to the next point. And this is really the most important point, I think, of the sermon. And that is what we find Paul saying in verse 11. 
He is expressing his desire to come to the church in Rome. To the end, he says, that they might be established by imparting some spiritual gift to them. Which, as I say, is an extremely important statement, something I spoke of earlier. It's the key to understanding Paul's reason for writing the letter. The thing he prayed for as well as the thing he hoped to accomplish himself on their behalf. Whether by coming to them or by writing this letter. He wanted these Christians to be established. And the way he sought to do this was by imparting some spiritual gift. And so I want to look at those two phrases uh, in opposite order. Uh, no, no, excuse me, actually, in, in their order. Ah, it is opposite order because in the verse he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you might be established. So the second idea first, beginning with the idea of what it means to be established, which Paul states as his goal. And, and then again, the means by which he would accomplish that goal was by imparting a spiritual gift. Well, uh, look at that idea, especially in connection with what he said in verses six through eight. He says, among whom you are Also, the called of Jesus Christ to to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of through the whole world. In those verses, Paul is expressing his thanksgiving that the gospel has reached those who were in Rome and in particular that they had believed it in such a remarkable way that it had become widely known throughout the Roman world. And as a result of this, the fact that they were now converted in this remarkable way, in verses 9 through 11, he expresses his desire and his prayer to come to them to the end that they might be established. In other words, if you think of what he is describing, uh, the situation that he is hoping to come into and to help, he is speaking to Christian people in Rome. His desire, in other words, was not to come to them in order to convert them to Christianity. These are people who already were Christians. And yet he can still say, verse 15, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, that's a very interesting statement. His desire is to preach the gospel to those who were already Christians. Do you find that surprising? I wonder if you do, if that is because you have become accustomed to thinking of this idea, the preaching of the gospel, primarily in terms of evangelistic activity. In other words, the preaching of the gospel is something that is meant for the unconverted in order to convert them. That is the common view today. When a man says he's going to preach the gospel, the thought is that he's going to evangelize the unconverted. He is going to preach the message of salvation to them in order to convert them. And of course, let us realize that is part of what it means to preach the gospel. But here, as Paul is expressing his desire to preach the gospel to them who were in in Rome, his primary meaning is not that. His primary meaning is that he wishes to preach the gospel to these churches composed of those who were already Christians. And here we are reminded of what is perhaps a surprising statement to the evangelical consciousness, though I I hope not so much for this congregation. And that is the fact, as Romans reminds us, that the gospel is meant for Christians. In fact, properly speaking, it is only meant 
for Christians. Paul implies this when he says that the gospel that he's ready to preach involves the power of God for everyone who believes. That is, it is meant for Christians. It's the power of God for them and for them only. Yes, and they had believed. And so Paul is saying its power was meant for them. But still we're left with this question, why does the Christian, someone who has already been converted and believed the gospel, need the gospel still? Why does he need somebody like Paul to preach the gospel to him? And here is where the idea, verse 11, of being established comes in. We must remember, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that conversion is not an end, it is a beginning. I wonder where the church would be today if only she would realize the simple truth. Conversion is not an end, it is a beginning. In other words, once a man has become a Christian, there's still work to be done. The preacher and the preaching has not come to an end. It is only just begun. There is still the need to preach to this man who is converted over and over again. He needs a clear sense of what it is. So that he's not so easily deceived or drawn away from it. As for instance, the Galatians were. They had lost sight of the gospel and they had come to believe another gospel. He needs to see its power and its strength. Not only to convert, the power of the gospel to convert, but the power of the gospel to establish. That is to make a man stable and unmovable. And so what each and every convert to Christianity needs... And this is what Paul seeks to do through the writing of his letters and through his preaching is to see what the gospel does for him. He needs to work out the great arguments, as Paul does in Romans, to the end that he might fully grasp what it means to be a Christian. What it means, that is, to stand in position with God, uh, of of, uh, position with God, of favor and grace. Again, this is what Paul was seeking to do in Romans the book of Romans, and in the preaching of the gospel to these Roman Christians. He is telling them what the gospel does for them, how blessed they are now that they've believed it. He's saying, do you see what this means for you? Are you able to grasp the full extent of the blessing? Do you comprehend fully what it means to be a Christian? Do you understand, for instance, what it means uh, when he comes later to say, if God is for us, no one can be against us? If only you did your life would look much different. And so in this way, he seeks to establish them, to give them a sure footing and grounding in the gospel. And that's what we all need. Every Christian needs to be established more and more in this life. We are never complete. We are never adequate in ourselves. There is always need for improvement and growth. We are always being established, which means more and more secure in our position. Or we could translate the word as being made firm or strengthened. And I'm saying that's the way to read the book of Romans. We understand its contents only when we understand the purpose of Paul. He is seeking to make firm these Christian people. He wants to strengthen them. Not to convert them, but to strengthen them. He wants us to see how secure we are, how blessed and unshakable our confidence in the gospel is meant to make us. We are convinced, we are persuaded, we are assured. That is what a Christian is, and that's where Paul will take us, if we'll go along with him through the book of Romans. And the reason we need this is obvious. We need this 
because all of us are prone to face many difficulties now that we are Christians. We are all like the Galatians in one way or another, prone to stray away from the one and only gospel. There are so many challenges which will challenge our faith, whether in the form of false teaching or trials or whatever. And the question, who is able to face them and not falter in his faith? Who is he that overcomes the world by faith? The answer is the man who is established and is sure. He who is a strong Christian. So that's what Paul wants to do for these Christians. And that's what uh, we might experience through uh, a study of the book of Romans. To be strengthened, to be made sure, to be established in the gospel. So that we're not so easily shaken by every trial and every form of false teaching. Stable, strong Christians. But how does it happen? How are we made sure? How are we established? And he says, by imparting some spiritual gift. And there is a certain amount of disagreement as to how to take this. It is possible here to speak of a spiritual gift in the sense of uh, what we typically mean from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or even Romans chapter 12. As though Paul wanted to give them a spiritual gift in that sense. Something like prophecy or administration or anything from those lists. Uh, But if that is your understanding, uh, I think you'll be able to see that would be to ignore the greater context of what Paul was actually saying here in light of what he hoped to accomplish. This is why we began with the second phrase first. And again, I'm indebted to Martin Lloyd-Jones in seeing this point. Paul was not speaking of a spiritual gift in the sense of prophecy or giving or whatever. The spiritual gift he wished to impart was the blessing by which he sought to establish them. The gift was what would establish them. The very thing he was imparting by writing this letter and that he would impart by preaching to them once he came to them. It was the result, uh, as we saw earlier in verse 9, of his spiritual service in the gospel. That is the sense in which we ought to understand this spiritual gift. And what was that? Well, let me read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the spiritual gift he wants to impart to the Romans is to open out the doctrines, to teach them, to instruct them, to establish them, to ground them. Nothing else can build us up. It is not entertainment we need. It is truth. It is knowledge. It is doctrine. That is the sense of the spiritual gift. Again, the spiritual gift was that by which he sought to establish them. And this is what we find in every epistle, as I said earlier. What we find is doctrine. We find teaching. We find truth. Not for doctrine's sake, but for the benefit of the people. These apostles were not writing to the academy, to the intelligentsia. They were writing to the churches composed of wise and foolish alike. He'll go on to say in verse 14, as we'll see next time. Even the fool was able to benefit from this teaching. The apostles were men who wanted to help the churches They wanted to strengthen and establish them. They wanted to impart some spiritual gift for their spiritual benefit. And they always sought to do so through the imparting of spiritual truths, that is, by doctrine. We never find the apostles seeking to help these churches in any other way. To them, the only way to help Christian people face all of the hardships of the Christian life and to be Christians in the truest sense was to give them the doctrines of Christianity and then to help them to work it out and to understand it. 
And to the extent that they were able to grasp the teaching and the doctrine, they would be established. But but not, you see, in any other way. And so that's what we find being stressed at the beginning of the book of Romans. If we want to know why they needed to know all about the doctrine of justification, we find the answer here. They could never be established without it. But finally, and in the third place, we should notice in verse 12 how how he balances this thought with what he says in that verse. Namely, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. You see, he includes himself in this. I'm very glad that he does. Remember what I said earlier about Paul the Apostle, Paul the Preacher, and Paul the Christian. Paul is here speaking primarily as a Christian. He doesn't stand above them as the mighty apostle who has something for them, but needs nothing in return. He doesn't say, I have something for you, but you have nothing for me. No, he says, I look forward to being with you that I might be benefited as well. How often I have to remind you of this, that the preacher is a Christian too. And do you think it was any different for the apostle himself? Do you think that he didn't need to be strengthened and established along with these Christians? And how does he envision this happening? In the very process of him seeking to strengthen them, he knows that he too will be strengthened. In other words, he is aware that in the church, even for the minister, there is always a mutual blessing, even in the act of preaching. There is reciprocity. It is not a one-way street. One man gives, but in giving he also receives. And so Paul doesn't imagine that the people have nothing to offer to him. No, he's very eager to be encouraged by them, just as he believes they will find encouragement by him. One man blessing another, and he blessing in return. That's Paul's view of the church. Both being encouraged together by the mutual faith of each. In fact, we already have seen that Paul was encouraged. He thanked God to see of their faith. Uh, spoken of throughout the world. And he is uh, saying that he will only be further encouraged in coming to them. What encouraged him was the fact that they were Christians, that they, like he, had believed the gospel. And this formed the basis as well as the possibility that they might be encouraged together. That's always the possibility when Christians come together. In other words, what he envisioned was that in coming to them, They would share in their experience and joy in the gospel. They would share together the great things God had done. They would talk about it and then they would work it out together. They would seek together as a mutual endeavor to be established more fully in the gospel. And so they would be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And so this gives us a sense of what Christian fellowship consists of in the in the apostles mind. As well as what made uh, him so look forward to enjoying it when he arrived in Rome and enjoyed the company of these Christians. He longed to be with them simply because they were Christians. Because they shared the same faith as he. It wasn't for any other reason. He wanted to enjoy their company and their fellowship and to hear of their progress in the gospel. And then perhaps to be instrumental along the same lines. There was nothing that interested the apostle more. He loved, if I could put it this way, to have good spiritual conversation. He loved to get together and talk as Christian people. 
He knew that there's no way when this happens not to be encouraged together. And so you see, as we see his ecclesiology here, the apostle did not envision the church as consisting purely of clergy and laity. That is the pastor and the people. Of course, this was included as the preacher. He would give the sermon just as he was the one who wrote this letter. He was the teacher. But that wasn't the only thing. That wasn't the only means of edification. That was in many ways only a stimulus to their faith by which altogether they were seeking to grow. And in all of this, there is a give and take. The preacher together with the people, the back and forth. In other words, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the church is not a place in which one man alone speaks and the others just sit and listen. That's the common view today, of course, or at least that is, as we know, the common tendency in reformed churches. But let me ask you, did you ever think to encourage the minister or what about your brother? Can you say of him what Paul says here of these Roman Christians in verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me? And there's nothing that does this. Like this common experience, the sense that we all have together, that we are being established by the gospel, that we are growing together and our faith is increasing in the presence of this teaching. Together, we are enjoying the spiritual gift. And as a result, we are being established and strengthened, which leads to mutual encouragement as we grow in our faith. That is Paul's picture of the church. Believers growing together, which includes the minister. He isn't finished. He is growing as well. He is benefiting from the people. This is something which Paul says he longs to experience himself again, not merely imparting a gift to them, but they to him in return. This is in many ways the only thing that can ever satisfy the heart of a true Christian to be with other Christians who are seeking to grow along with him in his faith. And so that is my question to you all as I close. I don't think there's any value in seeking to study the contents of the book of Romans and unfolding the doctrine of justification until we first resolve and answer this question. And that is, do you want to be strengthened and do you want to be encouraged? Is that your hope as you come to the letter? Is that our hope, our common hope? Are you seeking to grow as a Christian? I don't I don't know why anyone would bother listening to a sermon unless that was his hope. Or let me put it in the broad evangelical vernacular. Are you content merely with conversion and you're just biding your time until you get to heaven? But along with that, do you wish to see this occur within the context of Christian fellowship? Are you alone in the Christian life or have you learned along with Paul the value of this word together? That is, that I may be encouraged together with you. Well, you see, you can't just rush to the doctrine of justification by faith before we even get that far. We have to see who this doctrine is meant for. Whom it is meant to benefit and strengthen and how it is meant to help him. It's all meant to do this. Let me read again verses 11 and 12 as I close. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I 
may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Amen. And let us come together to the table.